0: Hello. Welcome to Teaching American History Saturday Webinar, a webinar and podcast series that explores controversies of American history. Today we are joined by our host, Jason Stevens of Ashland University, and panelists Scott Yenner of Boise State University and Andrew F. Lang of Mississippi State University. For this month's controversy, we've chosen to focus on the 14th Amendment an amendment so ambiguous that two-thirds of all Supreme Court cases incorporate its interpretations in their decisions. So, should the passage of the 14th Amendment be considered the fulfillment of the Declaration of Independence, or is it a new founding?
1: All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Jason Stevens. I'm Assistant Professor of Political Science and History at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio, and I want to welcome all of you to our October episode of this year's Saturday webinar series, American Controversies. We've been talking about fundamental questions in the history of the American story that involve significant constitutional, social, moral, political questions. By bringing together thoughtful scholars, like the the two gentlemen who are joining uh, us this morning, by bringing together thoughtful scholars with a variety of points of view, we hope to have a, a discussion a conversation about historically important issues that still resonate in the current classroom. We encourage all of you joining us today to participate in that conversation. We want you to be a part of this discussion this morning. Um, And we'd like you to do that by submitting any questions you might have for our panelists. Uh, Please use the Q&A box, not the chat box, but the the Q&A box to submit your questions. And we will try to get to as many of those as possible here this morning. And then within the next week, you will receive an email with links for further reading, as well as a link to the archive video from today's program. In the registration form, we linked to the speeches, the, speeches, the letters, the other writings uh, that we are using for today's conversation. I've got to tell you, these are, these are great documents that we're going to be looking at uh, today. Um, I, you know, I encourage all of you out there to, to read them. Um, many of them, are also available online at the Teaching American History's extensive document database located at tah.org, or in our core document collection. Today, we will be discussing the 14th Amendment. Joining me on our panel is Scott Yenner. He is Professor of Political Science at Boise State University, uh, as well as Andrew Lang, Associate Professor of History at Mississippi State University. Both uh, are also longtime faculty members in Ashland University's master's program in American history and government. They are both uh, good friends uh, of teaching American history in the Ashbrook Center. And gentlemen, I just want to welcome both of you to uh, to our webinar here this morning. Thanks for doing this.
0: Thanks for having us, Jason. Indeed. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, I don't want to worry about just dipping our, our toes in the water here. We're going to go ahead and, and jump right in uh, to this American controversy. Uh, today, our uh, guiding question is this. Did the 14th Amendment fulfill the promise of the Declaration, or was it a new founding? Uh, Scott, Andrew, I'd, I'd like to begin maybe just by uh, asking one or, or maybe both of you, um, can you provide some, some framework what is that question asking? What uh, what's going on here? What exactly is our our guiding question getting at? What does it mean? Right? Was the Fourteenth Amendment a, a fulfillment of the declare the promises of the Declaration, or was it a a new founding? Before we get started, I want to make sure we're all on the same page about what exactly it is that we're we're talking about here. And then maybe just as as a follow up question, uh, can you explain for our audience why this is such an important question? not just for for teachers and students to think about seriously, but really also for for all Americans to think about.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll take a stab at that first, Jason, and thanks for that. Um, So, you know, just let's go back to first principles on this uh, question. So according to the Declaration of Independence, the purpose of government is to protect rights. And, uh, you know, especially among which are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness when uh, the Constitution of the United States is passed, it, uh, it extends that promise or that goal of government to the created national government. So the national government has limits placed upon it that <clears throat> it cannot uh, you know, like pass laws against the freedom of speech, it cannot abridge the trial by jury and so on. Um, but it does not do so uh, to the state governments, which are also existing at the same time in the same constitutional system. The, the Declaration like limits the national government, but if you want to think of it like this, the Constitution does not overly limit the state government. So the state governments are not held to the same standards of rights protection that the national government is held to. Now, part of the reason for this is the existence of slavery uh, when the Constitution itself is passed, but it's also kind of more of a state-centered system. That is, uh, the states kind of demand sovereignty over matters involving property regulation, travel, um, contracts, and, uh, and free speech, free religion practice. So there's a lot of diversity among the states. They're not held to the same standards of rights protection that the national government is held to. The 14th Amendment is an attempt to deal with that problem. That is to extend, not, you know, the 13th Amendment had abolished slavery, that's gone. But now the 14th Amendment is dealing with the state's regulatory capacities or the standards to which states will be held when it comes to regulating rights. And uh, the readings that we have show, A, the problem that they're dealing with. Um, like some states didn't allow freedmen or others to travel or have jobs or have the right to contract. And then the national government kind of steps in and says, well, that's not exactly what we wanted. So, uh, but, but it requires a constitutional amendment to extend the, the rights protection to states to hold states to that standard. So I think the way I look at it, uh, the 14th Amendment uh, question um, is, is holding states to standards of rights protection extending the promise of the declaration or is it like a wholly new revolution in the government? You can kind of see my answer to it and the way I framed it. I do think that it's extending the gen, gen, general promise of the declaration to the uh, to states holding them to standards that are pretty traceable to the declaration itself um but that in itself means that like it's a it's a rejiggering of the power relations between the national government and the state governments um the debate all right we we can talk more about it as we go forward but that's the way i would frame
2: it I think we're going to find that uh, Scott and I are in uh, violent agreement um, for the next uh, hour or so, uh, which, is, which is a good thing. Um, I, I think that he said that uh, quite aptly. Um, I will add just a few things. Um, you know, when we think about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, in our, in our popular imagination and popular memory of the American Civil War era, we assume that they are natural outgrowths. Of the reasons for which a majority of the loyal American citizenry went to war in 1861. And I think that we need to disabuse ourselves of that notion. Um, for in 1865, um, most white Americans, that is, would have looked at the tally sheet and said that their two major uh, goals and objectives set forth in 1861 had been object- uh, had been um, secured. One, uh, defeating the rebellion and eliminating secession as a political recourse in the constitutional order. And two, now this became a contingent outgrowth of the war, but emancipation as the means by which to eliminate the central political controversy that had roiled the Republic uh, since its inception uh, by removing slavery also removes the basis from which any resurgent secessionist movement um, in the future. Uh, could sunder the nation. The 14th Amendment and its spirit and its essence is not necessarily embodied in those first two objectives, insofar uh, as we assume that the 14th Amendment deals with the question of racial equality. It does, but that is um, in, in many ways, at least contemporarily, uh, contemporaneously, a, um, a a secondary consideration. The 14th Amendment um, if if we if we take the architects at their word, what it's doing is it's trying to secure political equality in a region that had long been forsaken of small r Republican political equality. And why? Uh, because between 1865 and 1868, um, the resurgent old Confederate political order um, had uh, gotten back into power by harnessing uh, political authority through the means of leveraging racial oppression and exploitation. That is a violation of the verdict of union victory, a violation of emancipation. Um, And thus, the 14th Amendment, in my mind, is a conservative reaction against a revolutionary, anti-constitutional, anti-small-R Republican attempt by white Southerners to to, uh, infuse the nation with those uh, secessionist tendencies, those anti-Republican tendencies. Um, and we're left then, uh, the, the, the basis of our question today, we are left then with what exactly is the 14th Amendment? Is it a limited document in the sense that it secures and guarantees political equality? Or is it a document that is um, a guarantee of absolute universal rights? And uh, considering that two thirds of all Supreme Court cases uh, from 1868 until today have dealt with that question, um, that's why we're that's why we're here this morning.
1: Wow, that's really really good. Uh, and I did not know that about the the Supreme Court. Two thirds of all Supreme Court decisions have something to do with the text of the Fourteenth Amendment. So maybe it's. Important for all Americans to understand what exactly this amendment does, what it does not do, uh, and why it was why it was necessary in the course of American history. That's really good, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, I want to encourage everybody out there in, in the audience to uh, to continue to to send us questions via the uh, the Q and A box. Please use the Q and A box, not the uh, not the chat function, uh, to ensure that we we get those. And uh, yes, feel free uh, to our audience. Uh, send those, keep those questions coming. Uh, we're going to try to get to as many of them as, as we can. Um, I'd like to maybe just go next. Um, and this, this will probably end up getting us started talking about the, the, the wonderful documents that we uh, that we had to look at uh, today. Uh, by the way, all of those documents, uh, Scott, I think come from your volume in the core document collection of reconstruction. Yes, we've both got it right there. This is a terrific volume. Um, right? Scott has, uh, has really helped uh, teaching American history by, by putting this together. And the documents selected for today as I was preparing for this webinar, I realized that they, they sort of they perfectly tell this story um, from the end of the Civil War uh, and into into the next decades of the, the necessity and the interpretation of the, the 14th Amendment. And so maybe that's where we can go next in the course of our conversation here. Uh, fellas, I, maybe one or both of you can, can jump in here and, and, and start us off. Um, what was the situation uh, politically um, right after the end of the Civil War, right around the end of the Civil War, especially for the newly fra- freed slaves in the South? What challenges existed for securing the freedom of the newly freed slaves immediately after the Civil War? Yeah, I mean,
0: one of the things that uh, attracts me to studying Reconstruction is that I think it's actually the hardest question that's ever faced the American government. I mean, it's like nothing like founding the Constitution. That's like child's play compared to the difficulties that come up uh, after Reconstruction, because you have two problems, and the solutions to those problems point in opposite directions. So on the one hand, the union has won. They need to restore state governments in some way to the South, like they're not going to abolish the states. Um, And uh, so they are trying to like reintegrate them into the union after like killing each other for four years, not easy to do. And on the other hand, they kind of want to go against the grain of the Southern tendencies and secure emancipation more or less for the freedmen. And uh, so the more you restore the old Southerners to rule in the South, the less they're going to be willing to emancipate the slaves in reality. On the other hand, the more you emancipate the slaves in reality, the less you're going to restore uh, order and political rule to the Southerners. So trying to do both those things at the same time is trying to like trying to go east and west at the same time. And, um, and so There's various models that are adopted for accomplishing this, Uh, like Andrew Johnson, who I think is one of the key figures that's laying behind most of these documents, uh, has taken over for Lincoln as president. And his idea is, like, just let the Southerners back in, let them, you know, govern themselves however they see fit. And, uh, let's not hold them to any standards, but we've abolished slavery. Let's make them say they're never going to secede again. And we're done. We have reconstructed the union and, uh, and the Northern Republicans are like, no, we actually want to accomplish the emancipation of freedmen too. And, um, so they're always trying to up the game of the national government vis-a-vis, uh, the Southern restored governments. And, uh, the southern governments, left to their own devices, do the things in our first document. They pass the black codes. I just have the uh, Mississippi example, but these could be seen from almost any southern state. Uh, and Andrew is down there in Mississippi, so maybe he's more of an expert on the uh, black codes of Mississippi than I am. But you know, they just restrict. Uh, like we've abolished slavery, they say we've abolished slavery, but like you can't leave the town, and you must work in agriculture. And you will work the whole year and get paid in December. And uh, all of these things are like laws that are passed that really restrict the freedom and the ability of the, thank you, honey, the uh, Southerners to, uh, excuse me, of the freedmen to actually live free lives. So it's that practical problem. Like Johnson doesn't care about it. He's like, yeah, that's like, that's what self-governing states do. And the Northern Republicans, not like, no, this is not why we fought the war. Lincoln said, <coughs> excuse me, at Gettysburg, that, you know, we, we want to fight, bring this to a conclusion so that the dead shall not have died in vain. Well, this would be vain if uh, if that's all that's accomplished. So the debate is how to hold those governments to standards of, like, rights protection, um, and not only for the freedmen, but also, like, from like white Republicans who moved down there. And uh, people who want to speak about the condition of the freedmen have been arrested in the South. So like they want to extend the rights protection and limit the power of the states. But how do you do that? And the debate on the 14th Amendment is really about how to go about doing that. Um, We'll get into that a little bit later on uh, because there are several models for how to do it. But, uh, you know, that's the, I think that's the basic political situation, as I understand it, uh, at the beginning of these documents.
2: I'll I'll add just a few uh, additional points. Um, I feel like we have, uh, I really like the image that Scott drew about um, goals that are at once uh, consistent and yet um, paradoxical. And I think that we can see this also um, in in what's happening uh, to the size and scope of the United States Army uh, between 1865 and 1866. It's the foremost federal institution on the ground in the South uh, at the very end of the Civil War, obviously. Um, It is the institution, uh, federal institution, arguably most responsible for um, overseeing the process of emancipation in real time. And yet between 1865 and 1866, what is happening to the million soldiers um, who uh, were in uniform uh, in April and May of 1865, it is shrinking at a remarkable pace. Um, A million soldiers in uniform um, in in April of 1865, uh, down to uh, 200,000 by the end of the year, uh, down to maybe 50,000 a year later. So why, why are Republicans um, shrinking and demobilizing the very institution that can enforce the goals of reconstruction, right? Maintaining the union, enforcing the ideal of emancipation. Well, there's, there's our paradox, because in order to preserve the union, the union itself cannot re- uh, remain a highly centralized, highly militarized uh, European-style uh, state that, that is overly coercive against its uh, defeated foes. This is, this is one of our great problems. And yet, the army is, is the haven to which freed people um, uh, moved for protection, for um, uh, legal recourse, etc. The second problem uh, that we uh, have, um, and it relates to the Black Codes, is um, emancipation is dead. But what we see happening in the spring, summer, and fall of 1865 throughout Reconstruction is white Southerners absolutely consenting to the political reality of emancipation. But they are not going to consent to what Alexander Stevens in his infamous Cornerstone speech, um, talking about the foundation of the Confederacy, they're not going to consent to the death of what they believe to be, quote, a natural and moral order of white supremacy. And in the white Southern mind, what is happening through emancipation, through even um, uh, a modicum of discussion about political and racial equality, they see an unholy, unnatural um, a revolution happening against civilization itself. Um, I, I wanna see if I can find it real quick. Um, Jefferson Davis, when he is in prison at Fort Monroe, Virginia, in the fall of 1865, writes to his wife, Verena, and he explains this mindset perfectly. He says, "Um, if those who cannot shut their eyes to the evils involved in the social changes which have so suddenly been wrought or vainly attempt to resist the tide which cannot now be arrested, the direction of affairs must fall into incompetent or corrupt hands and accumulating disasters must be the result. And so what we need to do in understanding where we're headed with these debates about the 14th Amendment, we have to understand former Confederates, as they understood themselves, their reaction to emancipation, to racial equality in their mind is rational. It makes sense. It's, uh, it's self-evident. And that's that's our problem.
1: Yeah, Andy, you mentioned um, Alexander Stevens. After, after the end of the war, isn't he the former vice president of the Confederacy, isn't he re-elected to Congress by his constituents and he just shows up one day, knocks on the Capitol door and just, hey, we're back. Nothing has yeah. changed.
2: A- absolutely. This happens in, in uh, 10 of the 11 Southern states by the end of 1865. Um, they had 10 of the 11 states, with Texas as the exception, um, had complied with uh, Andrew Johnson's uh, plan for Reconstruction. Uh, which meant, as Scott said, repudiating secession, accepting uh, emancipation uh, through the 13th Amendment. Uh, And that's it, Uh, rewriting state constitutions, electing new state and national uh, representatives. And here we see um, former Confederates from Alexander Stevens on down, arriving in Washington to take their due seats in Congress. Reconstruction is done, the Civil War era is done. And yet, even the most moderate Republicans Kind of look at this and say, no, this is this is kind of beside the point, right? To put it mildly. Um, the as, as Scott so so eloquently said about uh, Gettysburg, um, this has to mean something. The last four and a half years has to have some kind of meaning. Um, the 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 loyal American citizenry, to put it uh, bluntly, they are grossly offended by what they perceive to be explicit slights um, from white southerners against the terms of. Of the
1: war. Absolutely. And Andy, that, that's actually the perfect transition to our, our first question from the audience. So thank you for that perfect transition. I'll pay you later. Uh, here's our, a question from an audience. and so this goes back to what Scott was telling us about the difficulty of Reconstruction um, and Johnson's plans as compared to Lincoln's plans. Um, right. So one of our audience um, members says, um, that uh, you know, Scott has, has great has, has explained uh, the goal under Johnson's leadership, where the South was restored but not reformed. How would that compare to what Lincoln had in mind? Could Lincoln have handled Reconstruction better than Andrew Johnson? I hope so. But even a, a man of Lincoln's great talents may have been seriously challenged right by the task before him in Reconstruction. Maybe the best thing. I don't know, I don't want to be too crude, but maybe the best thing that happened for Lincoln's reputation was that he, he died before having to face the realities of, of Reconstruction. Scott and, and Andrew, please feel free to jump in.
0: Well, I've said that many times, uh, what you just said there, when it comes to Reconstruction. Uh, I don't think Lincoln, I mean, Lincoln, the spirit that animated Lincoln was way different than the spirit that animated Johnson. Like Johnson was happy with racial subordination in the South and uh and lincoln i think was a pretty sworn enemy of racial subordination um, uh, and i think it, all of his comments on that are pretty qualified uh when he when he discusses it uh, before an illinois uh electorate but um but i i think when you actually trace what lincoln was doing when it comes to uh reconstruction that it actually maps pretty close to with what johnson did um He was very in favor of like Louisiana was like the Berlin of Reconstruction. It was the place where all the action was happening. So Berlin in the Cold War is like Louisiana uh, for Reconstruction. All the action was there. There wasn't an airlift uh, in Louisiana, but uh, but all the legal action really arises from uh, Louisiana because it was the first uh, place that the Union conquered uh, during uh, the during the Civil War. And it was the first place where, you know, the attempt to to remake the government, I'm using a different word than restore or reconstruct, um, and figure out what you're gonna do with the people who waged war against the United States and figure out what you're gonna do with the, uh, the freedmen. Um, that's the first place to like arose as a topic. And Lincoln was for a very easy peace with Louisiana. Even after Appomattox, in his last public address, uh, that he gives spontaneously um, on the balcony of the White House or something like that. Uh, Lincoln says, like, let Louisiana back in. They they, they haven't done everything I'd like them to do. They haven't given the vote to Blacks, which I'd like them to have done, at least the people who've served the union cause. But, you know, we're going to be able to reform them more if we let them into the union and let them have their own government. And we're going to really aid and, uh, and succor our, our allies in Louisiana by doing that, so I think that Lincoln, as I say, I think the spirit that animated Lincoln was different than Johnson. He may have adapted over the course of time to the changing realities as many of the Republicans did, and uh, so i don't discount that at all, but you know from the actual evidence we have of Lincoln, um, he was for what I call an easy peace uh, with with malice toward none with charity toward all, famously said in the second inaugural. What that means is we're not going to be mean to the Southerners. (laughs) Um, That's the, with malice toward none, that's like toward the people who waged war against the Union uh, for the last four years. We're going to give them an easy peace. He did give them easy pieces. He uh, gave them pardon. He granted amnesty to everyone who asked for it. And uh, so, I don't. I think only we only have kind of faith in Lincoln to think that he would have approached it differently than Johnson. I think it's a grounded faith. Uh, but during the war and in its immediate aftermath, while Lincoln was still alive, um, uh, he showed much the same inclination to what I will say restore the South uh, and not hold them to overly high standards of um, of rights protection.
1: And and Scott, I think I've heard you say also before. Whereas Lincoln in the second inaugural says with malice towards none, with charity for all, maybe would have been better to have it read with malice towards some and charity for most. Am I remembering this? I think this is another line of yours.
0: Yes, that is that is a line of mine. Um, like uh, it, it's one of the famous lines of Lincoln, but it leads to a horrible policy, a horrible policy of restoration that um, that Johnson ends up adopting. And like like these people waged war against the United States someone's gotta hang and uh and uh and but if no one hangs well then like there's no consequences for it so like uh people will push the envelope for reintegrating the union without any fundamental change in how the states behave and that's what happened um you know Lincoln Lincoln tried to encourage for instance Jefferson Davis to abscond from the country and uh and like that would be better because that that's more charitable than uh, putting him in prison and um you know maybe not maybe the actual charitable policy is to hang the leaders of the rebellion and uh and then when their spirit comes to restored government hang them and um and then you might actually get uh fundamental change um
2: this is my favorite part of having a Reconstruction discussion, because inevitably, um, what would Lincoln have done during Reconstruction always comes up. And so I've been, over the years, uh, uh, training my my, my, my my response to this. Um, I agree with pretty much everything Scott said, but I'm, I'm going to start with this. <clears throat> um, the, the most vocal group of uh, Northerners opposed to... Um, Uh, Punishment, you know, overwhelming punishment against um, Confederates was actually the abolitionists. Um, Because the abolitionists argued that to engage in this kind of violent uh, recourse, almost revenge, uh, makes us, the American people, the loyal American people, look exactly like and act exactly like slaveholders. And so their argument was what better punishment than keep them alive and free and live in a society? in which every day you see how your world has been turned upside down. Everything that you once thought was right, moral, and natural is now gone. That Black men now walk equal, uh, equal uh, of course, alongside white men, that, that a permanent labored underclass uh, governed by the, the strong-armed power of the central state is gone. Um, so that, that's the argument they make. And I always find that interesting. Um, uh, where, where Lincoln is concerned, um, Scott's absolutely right uh, that on paper the political program of restoration between Lincoln and Johnson is absolutely uh, almost identical. But I want to I, I want to add, um, Scott Scott mentioned that um, Johnson harnessed public sentiment in the most uh, foul and destructive ways. I think that's the great difference uh, between Lincoln. Um, and Johnson. Uh, Lincoln absolutely would have faced the same political difficulties that Johnson did. But Lincoln's basis and his philosophy of restoration was conditioned on the assumption that white unionists in the South would slowly over time shape public sentiment in a way so as to convince uh, fellow white Southerners of the new reality. Because this new reality can't be forced. Because when an oppressed or a defeated people, um, like former Confederates are faced with force and coercion, there will be a violent reaction. And so how do you shape public sentiment? It's hard work, as Lincoln said, uh, during the Lincoln Douglas debates. Uh, public, what did he say? Public sentiment is everything with it. Um, nothing, can, nothing can succeed without it. Nothing can fail, uh, but it doesn't happen overnight. And when we're thinking about Louisiana, uh, Lincoln writes a letter um, in March of 1864 to the, um, um, I don't know if he's the military governor or he's at least the Republican governor, the reconstruction governor of Louisiana, uh, Michael Hahn And he says, I barely suggest for your consideration whether some of the colored people may not be let in. As for instance, the very intelligent and especially those who have fought gallantly in our ranks. They will probably help in some trying time to come to keep the jewel of liberty within the family of freedom. Well, what's he talking about here? It's the same logic that Lincoln uh, used to advertise and support his policy for arming Black men as Union soldiers. Who better than the most loyal of Americans who support the Republican Party, who support the policy of emancipation, to demonstrate in shaping public sentiment? right? that we are, we meaning Black men, are equal, that we are functional members of a free society, that we are intelligent, and what Lincoln means by intelligent is, is, is very key here. Not, not meaning smart, but meaning um, uh, how, how, how do we connect ourselves to the fundamental ideals of the American founding and recognize the American founding for what it truly was. There's no group of Americans who understand the authentic meaning of of the American founding properly understood than black Americans, necessarily so. And so that's what we're missing um, in the wake of Lincoln's assassination. This subtle, nuanced, but very focused uh, shaping of public sentiment um, and the consequences um, are are stark.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. Thank you both. Uh, we, We have another question coming in here from our audience, and by the way, to our audience members out there, please keep them coming. Uh, this next one has to do uh, with our next document, which I believe is the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Um, both of you gentlemen, you've have, you've have laid out very nicely for us all of these, these various challenges that existed in the country right after the end of the Civil War. Um, how were those challenges addressed by legislation or some other means um, prior to the passage of the the 14th Amendment and how successful were they? We have in mind probably specifically this this next document, the Civil Rights Act of of 1866. How effective was this act of Congress, this person asked, and why then was the 14th Amendment still necessary after its passage?
0: Well, um, I I look, the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment should be seen kind of as a package deal uh, they represent a model for how to get things done, uh, how to reconstruct the South. Um, and I, I don't think it should be seen as why was the 14th Amendment possible. Uh, that, that's the, the right way to look at it, I think, is the 14th Amendment is the constitutional change on which the Civil Rights Act rests. So we had to, we had to deal with the problem that the national government was not holding the states to any standards in the Constitution the 14th Amendment changes that reality. There are standards to which the states will be held after it is passed. And the states will be held, as Congress interprets it, to these standards uh, that you find in the Civil Rights Act. So uh, let me just use it, uh, an illustration here for a second. <clears throat> um, uh, you know, Under the original Constitution, states could provide unequal protection of the laws so so that they could regulate who has access to state courts, what kind of punishments state courts mete out to the people who have committed crimes uh, was completely unregulated by the national government. What the 14th Amendment does uh, in its final form, and we can talk about the various forms that it takes uh, because I think that's important, Um, But what the 14th Amendment does is say, like, actually, no, states have to provide equal protection of the laws, same crime, same punishment. And then the Civil Rights Act creates, like, legislation to, to, like, mirror the same thing. Congress requires that people have access to the courts, to the full and equal benefits of all laws, uh, as it says in Section 1. And um, uh, and, it, and I think it's explicitly uh, toward the freedmen in that case. Everyone shall have the same e- equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for security of property and persons as is enjoyed by white citizens and shall be subject to like punishments, pains, and penalties. So that means that now there is a uh, a provision in national law and an institution in the national government that will oversee the actions of state governments. So let me back up. And let me just, let me make that a little clearer. Uh, the 14th Amendment, as it is passed, gives people who have not gotten the equal protection of the laws access to federal courts. They can say that my constitutional rights have been violated. I have not gotten equal protection of the laws. The Civil Rights Act, allows the national government to dip in to the states and say, we are now going to provide you with equal protection laws that the states have deprived you of under the supervision of the Department of Justice. So if Congress never does anything, if it never passes the Civil Rights Act, people still have access to the courts under the 14th Amendment. But the Civil Rights Act also allows, under the Section 5 of, this, of, uh, of the 14th Amendment, the national government to dip in and actually actively provide the, uh, the regulation of the states uh, that it didn't have under the original constitution. So I look at them as like a framework um, and uh, as, as part of the same framework for protecting rights. And like, just to put it, make it very clear, The way I look at the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act is the backstop theory. The states get the first chance of protecting rights. They always have had that. All right. If they don't do a good job, then there's a backstop. There's a backstop in the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act. So it's not revolutionary in that the states always have the first stab at protecting rights. But... The revolution, which is smaller than it might otherwise be, is that if the states screw up, there is uh, appeal to the courts, and in, as long as the Civil Rights Act stay on the book, an appeal to like national executive institutions to provide um, the rights protection that it might otherwise not have uh, had, uh, absent these backstops. So like Johnson was like, come back in and do whatever you want. That's the restoration model. The Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment together like, equal the backstop theory of how to protect rights.
1: Just a very quick follow-up to that, Scott. So without the backstop of the 14th Amendment, if you just have the 1866 Civil Rights Act, without that backstop, doesn't that then mean whichever party controls the Department of Justice... Right, we'll determine right the extent to which those rights are protected by the national government. So, if Republicans yeah. are in, that's one thing. But if the Democrats come in charge, that may be quite another. And yeah, therefore, the protection that, for those rights would vary depending on yeah. who's in charge of the government.
0: Not only that, but if the Democrats uh, took control of Congress, they could repeal it. So, um, so yeah, not only would it be shaped by an executive, but it could be repealed by the legislature. And that means that there's always the backstop um, to the federal courts. Um, and, you know, the, the document that, you know, like my favorite document in the volume that I did, if I can say that, they're all my children, but this is my favorite child, uh, is the document on the debates uh, concerning the 14th Amendment, which are really right on that topic. Um, and I don't know if everyone wants to look at it and like, can I just go for a second here and talk about this? But the original form of the uh, 14th Amendment, if you look at uh, the document called Congressional Debate on the 14th Amendment, um, all it did was empower Congress. This is the original 14th Amendment. Congress shall have the power to make all laws necessary and proper to secure to citizens of each state all privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states and to all persons of several states equal protection of life, liberty, and property. So all it did was empower Congress to make laws but it didn't create a constitutional right. And this fellow from New York, uh, Giles Hotchkiss, arises to oppose it. Now, this guy was like like a Lincoln type. You know, he joined politics because he wanted to save the union. Uh, He was an adherent to Lincoln. And he says, look, I mean, this original proposal, I like what you're trying to do, but it's not done very well and uh he's criticizing uh the ohioan uh john, uh john bingham who has written it and uh hotchkiss says this to him um you know everyone laughs uh when he says it uh but he says i think the gentleman from ohio mr bingham is not sufficiently radical in his views upon the subject i think he is a conservative and everyone laughs and uh beca- but he's conservative because he hasn't created the constitutional right and um and then basically uh, Bingham goes into his cave and studies the matter of how to protect rights for a couple months and comes back with what is now the 14th Amendment. Says, ah, Giles, I understand what you're saying. Uh, We should have created a constitutional right. We should have said no state shall, right? That's the formulation of the 14th Amendment. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life or liberty or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction equal protection of laws. So now it's a state, a standard to which states are held, regardless of who controls the levers of the legislature or the executive branch. Uh, they can always appeal to the judiciary. Now, that doesn't always end up working. We'll get to that in a little bit, but.
2: I'm really glad that we have. Uh... Dipped into the debates on the Fourteenth Amendment because they're absolutely relevant to um, the Civil Rights Act and everything. There, uh, there between, I, I love the the Hotchkiss uh, argument because the other the other point that he's trying to to get across is to say, look, are we really comfortable with the with the federal government itself, the author of what the state laws will be, um, and that's. That's not what's happening in the final draft, right? It's the exact opposite. Um, Scott's exactly right. Instead of the, 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 the federal government being the author, it is, it is uh, instead the arbiter. And that's a huge difference because elsewhere in debates, it's not in, it's not in our packet here, but I mean, these, these, these debates are, are so voluminous. Um, there is an emphasis from the most radical Republican down to the most conservative Republican during these debates. About, ma- about the necessity of maintaining federalism, right? And in that sense, I, I, I like, like Scott, I, the, the, the premise of revolution begins to shrink. Because yes, the federal government has new authority, but does it have new power over the states? I'm, I don't think it does because the states are still able in the federalist structure to be their own laboratories of democracy. But what is the standard to, to which they're held? It is nothing more, nothing less than uh, the uh, enduring clauses of the of the Declaration of Independence. Now, with the Civil Rights Act and the Fourteenth Amendment, um, uh, opponents from a Northern Democrats to Southern Democrats said, "Well, the Civil Rights Act is," uh, and, and Andrew Johnson blatantly unconstitutional, right? It is it is a revolution of the constitutional order. I'm not sure. I, I, I am sure. But I was going to say, I'm not sure that that's correct. Um, and, and, and here's why. Several things. We, when we look at the 13th Amendment, we often lose sight of Section 2. We always go, obviously, necessarily to Section 1, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, dot, 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 shall be advanced um, uh, it, it slavery. I'm trying to do it for Amendment. Section 2, though, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. That, I mean, I, I, I love the vagueness and the open-endedness, open-endedness of that. What is the Civil Rights Act doing? It is an outgrowth right there of Section 2 of the 13th Amendment, an amendment, of course, that is ratified by three-quarters of the states, thereby giving the people sanction a popular majority rule consensus sanction to the Civil Rights Act. But the Civil Rights Act and later the 14th Amendment are also growing out of a long-standing, decades-long anti-slavery constitutional um, tradition that is rooted in the anti-slavery reading of of the last line of the Fifth Amendment. Um, Let's see, no person, and, and, and remember, the the Constitution does not specify what kind of person. It's no, it, it doesn't say no white person. It says no person. Anti-slavery activists argued that enslaved people, by their very nature as a person, cannot be property. And thus, in the Fifth Amendment, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or process, uh, uh, or property without due process of the law. The Civil Rights Act, the 14th Amendment, Give definition and texture to what already exists in um, in, in uh, the Bill of Rights, and so do we want to talk about this as a as a revolution in democratic government? Sure, there, there there are plenty of arguments for that, and Eric Foner, the great historian of the entire um, Reconstruction period, has made that case in his book since 1988, um, and he, he's he's got a, he's got a good case, but. I don't know. I just look at it different because I, 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 I read the debates. I read the context. 19th century Americans are inherently conservative, non-ideological conservative. They are fearful of revolution. They are fearful of great, massive change. They want to preserve a small-R Republican system properly understood. I think that's what the Civil Rights Act and 14th
1: Amendment are doing. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Thank you so much for that response. We, we, we've got several questions coming in and folks keep them coming, please. We're, we're getting several here on the, the, the debates on the 14th Amendment and what the 14th Amendment actually, actually means. And so I want to I try to maybe combine uh, a few of those um, before we, we move on. To the Supreme Court's interpretation of the uh, of the Fourteenth Amendment, which which I think with the Slaughterhouse cases were that's our next step. But maybe before that step, I want to go back just one more time to those debates because uh, one of our audience members, or like I said, several of our audience members, um, are interested in particularly what you know both of you gentlemen have mentioned. This Mister Hotchkiss, what he has said uh, in the course of the debates. Um, One of our audience members pulls out a great line from these debates where says, constitutions should have their provisions so plain that it will be unnecessary for courts to give construction to them. They should be so plain that the common mind can understand them, end quote. Is he referring, is he inferring, excuse me, that we should be able to understand exactly what they meant should occur with the 14th Amendment, especially considering there's so much debate about this today. Andy, you mentioned at the, the top of our webinar, two thirds of all Supreme Court cases deal with, with the, the 14th Amendment. So, Howard, please just, just comment on, on that. Is he inferring that we should be able to understand exactly what the 14th Amendment says without uh, much help? or do we need the Supreme Court to figure it out for us?
2: I, I, I'll just briefly say, um, I, I, wanna, I wanna advertise something real quick. This is a book that I, I recommend everybody read. William Nelson, the 14th Amendment from Political Principle to Judicial Doctrine published in 1988. I, I'm at, this semester, I'm teaching a graduate seminar on Reconstruction, And this is this past week's reading. This is one of my favorite books. To help us understand this question. One of the big themes that he draws out in this book, and he has uh, looked at every congressional debate, every private correspondence, everything written by the architects of the 14th Amendment. And he says one of the great paradoxes of the authors themselves, and they knew it, was that they were writing something uh, what, what, what Nelson calls with emptiness and vagueness.
1: Now he's not being
2: critical. It's the emptiness and vagueness that actually speaks to the 14th Amendment's spirit. Because what is the spirit of the 14th Amendment? It is political equality, inherently. It is um, a restoration of the Constitution's guarantee that each state will maintain a Republican form of government. But... That's what we can read and sense and feel in the 14th Amendment. And yet we are left with well, what, what do any of the words in any of the five sections even mean? The Hotchkiss uh selections, I think, help us better understand that. Because at some point you have to write something that is not specific, that does not shoehorn people, because this is an amendment. You have to get three-quarters of states in an incredibly diverse, politically diverse republic to get on board, but what we all know in a diverse Republican system is what equality generally feels like, right? And that's what the 14th Amendment speaks to without being specific, and yet we are left over the next 150 years with a huge mess on our hands trying to give definition to this very uh, vagueness, uh, but but the emptiness, the ambiguity, the vagueness it was on purpose, um, because we 're also dealing with whom here we are not dealing with legal theorists, we are dealing with politicians, and we are dealing with statesmen again, who are drawn from the antebellum anti slavery tradition, political tradition, and that 's what they 're thinking about. They are thinking about you know, uh, imbuing principle into the constitution. And they're thinking less about judicial doctrine, um, and the courts um, will will certainly have a say in this.
0: Well, we we have a moment of disagreement. This would be great. Um, so, uh, uh, I mean, and I, I I'm not really in position to argue against the book because I haven't read it, but I did write the title down and um, and. So what I think, I I think there are two questions that we should separate when we think about this. Um, One is the question of authority. And the the second is the question of the substance of the standards. What Hotchkiss is talking about when he talks about the constitution should have their provisions so plain that it would be unnecessary for courts to give construction to them. He's talking about the question of authority and he immediately dips into the question of authority. Uh, And he criticizes the first proposal for the 14th Amendment as, like, not granting the national government sufficient authority and access to the courts for violations of constitutional rights. So the next paragraph, after talking about the plainness of constitutional provisions, right in the middle of the paragraph, Hotchkiss says this, it should be a constitutional right that cannot be wrested from any class of citizens or from the citizens of any state by mere legislation, but this amendment proposed it to leave it to the caprice of Congress, and your legislation upon the subject would depend upon the political majority of Congress, and so on. So, like he wants to make the question of authority very clear, and he thinks that uh, that Bingham's intention contradicts the proposal. So he wants to make that part clear, but this and the substance of it, I think, he also wants to make clear. But like that's not the that's not the, the the question that he's concerned about in this February debate, where he talks about um, the question of authority. The May debate is a, the question of substance. Like the question of authority has been resolved. Now there's a question of substance, and I think the people who are deliberating upon the Fourteenth Amendment and what equal protection means and what life, liberty, and property uh, not being deprived without due process of law thought it was actually a very specific thing. And it was only after the Supreme Court, frankly, screwed it up in the Slaughterhouse case that we've had so much debate over the vagueness and emptiness of it. So I don't think the vagueness and emptiness of the 14th Amendment is intrinsic to the 14th Amendment. I think it's something foisted upon it by extraneous Supreme Court decisions. Um, When you look at uh, the... um, The substance of the 14th Amendment, and I think it's discussed best by this Michigan uh, Senator, Jacob Howard, um, who, referring to a a Bush-Rudd-Washington decision from the 1830s, uh, Corfield versus Coriel, um, maybe it was 1820s, um, you know, he just defines what the privileges and immunities of citizenship are. Uh, It's very nice. He says, basically, that all the rights in the Bill of Rights, well, those need to be applied. (laughs) to the states and they need to be held to those standards. And um and then you know he there, there are other things that Bushrod Washington talks about I'm just not going to get into all the details. But you know I think that you know it's it's uh it's basically the position of the America the contemporary left in America that the 14th amendment is filled with vague generalities. And if you want to look at the 14th amendment as completing the constitution as as delivering on the promise of the declaration, and you return to the debates, you see that the question of authority is pretty clearly defined, and the meaning of the provisions of the 14th Amendment are also actually very clear and limited in their scope. And it's only with the modern court that you get the penumbras and emanations from these uh, from these decisions that require, reco- let like make them into vague generalities but i think you have to leave the debates and leave the text in order to get to that position
2: i i i can see it entirely uh to this point uh that uh <laughs> so um uh, no no that uh that is i i i agree entirely with 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 um with what you've said and i think that we uh, j- just to add to this um I think what they're trying to do here is they are recognizing just how backwards um, the, these definitions of, of rights have become because of years of slaveholder interpretations of the Constitution. And so they're trying to give um, original meaning uh, properly understood to what are other, should have otherwise been very clear and um, consensual terms. But uh, from, from Calhoun on to Jefferson Davis and everyone in between. These ideas have been so twisted and mangled that that the Republicans are trying to unravel decades of, of misunderstanding um, to put things back in in proper order that, that's all i 'll add to that
1: Oh, what a fantastic debate that That was so good, guys. that was great and you see look look I, what part of the reason I love doing these these webinars and working for teaching American history is that. Right. Even when we disagree, we, we're still friends, and it turns out we probably agree more than, more than we think sometimes. That, that was so good. Thank you for that. Um, so you both mentioned the Supreme Court. So let's go to the Supreme Court next. Let's allow the Supreme Court to weigh in here because the very first question that we got at the start of this webinar had to do with the slaughterhouse cases. So what about the impact of the slaughterhouse cases for understanding the, the purposes of the, the 14th Amendment? This individual specifically asked uh, to please explain the, the importance and changes the slaughterhouse cases made in the law for the every man. If I could maybe put it, you know, in a slightly different spin on this, according to the court. Well, I, no, let me take that back just I'll, I'll just ask the question were the constitutional rights held by citizens of the United States now protected against violation by the states or not.
2: I'm not going to go first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all
0: right. Well, I will. Um, the, the Slaughterhouse case basically takes it all back. Um, and uh, the reasoning of the Slaughterhouse case is that if we actually held the states to standards of, privi- of protecting the privileges and immunities of citizenship, that would amount to a constitutional revolution but no one called it a constitutional revolution at the time. Therefore, we are not holding the states to uh, standards of privileges and immunities for all citizens. So, I mean, we could, like, I, I, like I, I, I'm trying to explain this in a very layman's like way, uh, but, but we could go actually through the documents and show this for a second. Um, so let me do that. And I hope this proves helpful to people um but let's compare the civil rights act first let's look at the civil rights act for a second um and i hope you guys have this in front of you but this is just going to be a quick way of showing what the slaughterhouse case did okay so the civil rights act follows the format of the 14th amendment all right now this is something that like very few people recognize but it's really important the four- as, so if you look, um, part is the second sentence of Section 1. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of, of the United States. And then there's the Due Process Clause, and then there's the Equal Protection Clause. Now flip to Section 1 of the Civil Rights Act, because the Civil Rights Act lists the civil rights. And it does so in a way that says, here's the privileges and immunities. Here's the due process. Here's the equal protection. Okay, so look at uh, the first paragraph of the Civil Rights Act. Um, so you know, forget the first three lines of it. But every race and color, with regard, without regard to any previous condition of servitude or in, involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, which shall have been, shall have the same right. These are the privileges and immunities of citizenship. Okay have the same right in every state or territory in the United States to make or enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, or convey real and personal property. Those are the privileges and immunities of citizenship. And then it talks about the process. Then it talks about equal protection. It follows exactly the same format. And what the Supreme Court does in slaughterhouse is to say wow if they meant to give um if if they meant to protect all of those rights the right to have access to the courts the right to have property if they meant to protect all those things like that would overturn our whole system so they mustn't have meant to give all of those things the slaughterhouse case um I think the key line here is, I don't know how far along it is and I think you guys probably have a PDF, but it's in Justice Miller's decision, you know, like six six or seven paragraphs before the end. Um, They say this, the argument we admit is not always the most conclusive when it is drawn from the consequences urged against the adoption of a particular construction of an instrument, but when, as in the case before us, these consequences are so serious so far reaching and pervading, so great a departure from the structure and spirit of our institution, when the effect is to fetter and degrade the state governments by subjecting them to the control of Congress in the exercise of powers, heretofore universally conceded them of the most universal and fundamental character, when in fact, it radically changes the whole theory of the relations between state and federal governments to each other and of both these governments to the people, the argument has a force that is irresistible in the absence of language which expresses such a purpose to clarify, to admit of no doubt, to admit of no doubt. So anyways, um, like that's what the slaughterhouse cases do. It says, wow, it would have been really important if, they, uh, if, the, if the 14th Amendment changed the relations between the state and government. And like, we don't like that, so we're not going to do it. And it takes back a lot of those privileges and immunities and narrowly defines the privileges and immunities so basically it has no effect on how the
2: states operate i don't have much to, to add to that that was spectacular um but i, I went I'm gonna... on a rant i went on a rant but no no that that's good i i i have i have rants too so um i i, I definitely understand um i just wonder I am. I'm not trying to revive the ambiguity arg. I, I guess I am trying to revive the ambiguity argument a little bit, because I'm. I'm now entirely convinced uh, uh, by by Scott's um, explanation of of how clear the intent was from from earlier, but I do wonder if 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 slaughterhouse is an indication somewhat of how privileges and immunities at least in the text of section one um can 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 be read as um you know, here's one interpretation here's another even though we instinctively know and we can go back to coryell um Corey, uh Corey Yell, we can go back to coryell and understand we can look at the constitution and understand what privileges and immunities are but i wonder if if Slaughterhouse is not an indication of the consequences of of not spelling it out um or if or if uh, Slaughterhouse is just what the Supreme Court does and begins to rewrite things as it sees fit. I'm not sure. Uh, This is a question I ask my students, um, and I've been thinking about the last few days and preparing for this.
0: So we we should just talk briefly about what the facts of Slaughterhouse are. Um, That that Louisiana basically made someone's uh, like Slaughterhouse unprofitable by granting monopolies to other slaughterhouses. And the people who lost their slaughterhouse or the value of their uh, their business said that this was taking property. And you know, one thing the court could have done is said this, you're right that the state cannot take property uh, away, that they cannot grant monopolies so as to deprive people of their uh, their genuine property they can, uh, the states cannot decrease the value of it through their regulations, um, but this case like is too much of an extension of that principle, so forget it. But instead, what the court said is, oh yeah, you say that your property's lost value, therefore the states can never regulate property, or the, the states are free to regulate property however they want. They could have like had a moderate like, you're right. This holds the states to standards, but this is taking that standard too far, but instead, they just swipe away all standards and um, so I think there was a moderate approach that was available to them, and I might have signed on to that opinion. You never know but um, but the, the decision like blows away the mosquito with a bazooka and uh, and then puts the bazooka hole right in the constitution. Yeah, and in a
2: in a in a roundabout way, uh, I think unintentionally, it adopts some of the oblique logic left over from Dred Scott in 1857, insofar as it creates from the from the bench of the Supreme Court where citizenship derives from. And in uh Slaughterhouse, we're we're left with this bizarre notion that uh we all uh have two legal citizenships, right? Citizenship of the Nation and Citizenship of the State, which I, I love explaining that one to my students because that, that right there, their first question is, oh, okay, so now I see legally how we get to um, uh, Cruikshank and especially uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, which are entirely based on notions of national citizenship and state citizenship, which uh, cannot be at cross purposes. And how the court, I'm not not a legal historian. I'm I'm not a court historian. But that's the part of Slaughterhouse, I uh, admit I've never understood how they were able to get to that logic, which then blows up um, this this entire enterprise.
0: Oh, see, now let me just respond to that because we might be in disagreement on this too. Like, I think the dual citizenship thing is true. We are citizens of one state. We can vote for our state legislators. Uh, We're subject to state laws. Uh, We can help make state laws, but we're also citizens of the country. The backstop theory of reconstruction is based on the idea that we have dual citizenship. We are citizens of states. The states can do their job properly initially, but if they don't screw up, we're also citizens of the country and rights adhere to those citizens. So I think like here's something that you don't hear on an Ashbrook seminar very often, but Dred Scott gets that right. Right, that we are dual citizens, and uh, and I think that uh, Slaughterhouse is right to say that we're dual citizens. Uh, the whole theory of that this is not a revolutionary change in government is based on the idea that we're dual citizens. Um, it's just that it offers such a thin understanding of national citizenship that uh, that it ends up gutting the whole idea, and uh, and reviving that idea takes you know like hundred years. That 's actually really clarifying. I, I I appreciate that so yeah me too a seminar we need to do a seminar in praise of dread that 'll be a big winner
1: <laughs> uh, we 'll have to take that one under advisement <laughs> we by the way you you gentlemen you you just answered like three or four questions that we had coming in about getting the facts of the the slaughterhouse case, summarizing miller 's opinion, the makeup of the court. Um, so you've pretty much answered several of the questions already of our audience members, but we've got one more question for you because we're, we're quickly running out of time we're down to our final three minutes so I'm going to have to ask you both to, to be brief on this I know these, these webinars they always they always fly by. So we've got a question coming in about the last document Frederick Douglass and his talk, the United States cannot remain half slave and half free from 1883. Um, in this speech Frederick Douglass at times sounds very pessimistic, uh, and at other times he sounds extremely optimistic. Why is that? What are the, what are the sources of his pessimism? What are, the, what are the sources of his his optimism?
2: I'll, I'll start uh, by saying briefly, read anything that Frederick Douglass wrote in the first five years of the 1880s. And it's the same theme all the way through. I would, I would add, read his speech from 1880 called West India Emancipation, uh, which is actually way more pessimistic than, than the one under review here, because he's looking back at the whole Civil War era and recognizing that there were two wildly different interpretations about how to conduct the war, what it was about in the minds of white Americans versus Black Americans. And that's what he's dealing with here in, the, in uh, his, his own house divided. Uh, speech, I think that uh, i 'll start with the optimism, but it 's also rooted in the pessimism. I think that Douglas understood the inherent logic of what Lincoln was saying in the House divided speech because it 's not simply having a geographical division between free states and enslaved states its it 's an intellectual and a moral division between competing claims to truth. Um, are humans innately equal as humans, or are humans? Can humans be reduced to property? When you have an argument, a moral and an intellectual argument rooted in that kind of conflicting uh, uh, claim to truth, then the house cannot be whole. And that's what I think Douglass is dealing with here. Um, He's he's actually speaking implicitly that there is a kind of blasphemy that's still continuing in the American body politic that still claims that some humans are superior to others and he's saying no that is objectively it can't be true but there are some americans who insist on it and how we undo that um is a is a matter of 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 time because he also says toward the end there is but one destiny right at some point we're going to get this right because truth can't be concealed forever that's what lincoln was saying too but we can also go backwards so easily. We can royal ourselves in contradictions. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave
1: it at that.
0: I see we're out of time, but then I'll just say very briefly that I think he thinks the original understanding of the Fourteenth Amendment reflects the Declaration, and that the people of the of the nation are the people of the Declaration. So, um, this the condition of blacks will bother Americans.
1: All right. One final note to take us home, gentlemen. Uh, I, Andy, I think you already did this. Take you have five seconds to recommend one or two books that you would uh, that you think would be useful for our audience to read to better understand this topic. Certainly, the Nelson
2: book, and I will also recommend as a primer on Reconstruction um, Alan Gelzo's great brief book called "Reconstruction: A Concise History." Um Gelso's fantastic. Th- th- this is the book to read.
1: And that's really a book. I read that book. That's been, the, the reconstruction volume from Guelso. It's awesome in many ways. One of it, one of the, the great ways that it's awesome is how it's its accessibility. Right? Absolutely. It's 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 comprehensive and yet uh uh accessible. And you can you can read it in one or two sittings. It's a it's a short book. Scott, totally. any recommendations from you?
0: Getting it from my shelf here. I mean, I think James McPherson's book, um The Struggle for Equality is Good. And, uh, you know, there's an endless number of books on Reconstruction, and I don't want to say that that's the best, but I do think Eric Foner's book, Reconstruction, is probably the best, even though I don't like the framework over much.
1: Mm -hmm. I'll recommend this book on Reconstruction. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us. Thanks to our our panelists as well as to our participants for some great questions this morning. Uh, As a reminder, within the next week, you will be receiving an email that will include links to today's readings, suggested further readings on today's topic, uh, and a link to the archived webinar. We hope you will share this information with your colleagues as well as on social media. If you enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course In our MAG program, our Masters of Arts in American History and Government program, Uh, both Andrew and and Scott teach in that program. They have for years. Uh, You can find more information about our online course offerings, as well as many other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. It's a fantastic resource for, uh, especially for teachers, but really for teachers, students, citizens, all Americans. This is our second episode of American controversies. Our program will return in a few weeks on November 5th, when the discussion will turn to federalism. We hope to see you all then. Thank you again so much for being with us. Gentlemen, Andy, Scott, thank you both for being with us uh, this morning. It's always a pleasure. And we will, uh, we will look forward to, to seeing you all with us here uh, here again. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Audience, thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks.
0: Thanks again for listening to Teaching American History's webinar on the 14th Amendment. For more information on our webinars, in personal educator professional development programs, free document library, and graduate program, please visit us at
2: TAH.org.